Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll be go before him in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for the goodness and grace, the good news that you've declared to us, O Lord. Lord, the good news was declared to angels, by angels in times past, but is now declared to us, O Lord, through the church, and it's contained in this gospel message that you came to this earth and you uh, came to live a righteous life, to bear our sins, to bear the sins of many, to die on that cross, but to rise from the dead so that we may have eternal life. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, and we praise you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your uh, preserving grace to keep us, O oh Lord, till the end. Oh, we just rejoice 
in you, O Lord. And we pray now, Heavenly Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would give us insight into the mysteries of the gospel and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and how you intervened in their life, O Lord, at this time in, in redemption history and what that purpose is for us. Holy Spirit, give me grace as I, um, Lord, um, just just move in your spirit to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, pardon me. We are entering the 2023 holiday season, and uh, obviously this week is, is Thanksgiving, and that kind of kicks off what we traditionally consider the the, the Christmas or holiday season. Uh, Black Friday, people go out and shop and spend all their money trying to get as much as they can, as cheap as they can. Clearly, um, lost in in the commercialism of what the world uh, presents, uh, we ought to have our focus on what the real reason is for Christmas, what the real reason is for the holiday, and that is to point our hearts to Christ, um, the birth of Christ and the coming of Christ into the world, the Son of God becoming man is no small thing. In fact, um, the incarnation is is the focal point of Christianity. Without the incarnation. There is no Christianity. It is as vital to our understanding of faith as it is the death and resurrection of Christ. And as we get into the Gospel of Luke, like all of the Gospel accounts, they tell the story of Jesus. They tell the story of of his ministry and of his coming into this world. Um, Different writers give us different versions. John starts with eternity past with the eternal logos of God who dwelt among men and became flesh. Mark jumps right into the public ministry of John the Baptist and Christ. And uh, Matthew uh, gives us a little more of an expanded version of what Mark does. Um, But on the other hand, Luke, as he begins his story, and he gives us an orderly account as a historian, the question is, where does Luke begin? And Luke begins, like all the other gospel writers, with, with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist is absolutely and utterly foundational, important to the ministry of Christ coming to the world. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. But John the Baptist is usually presented already in public. He's already with his uh, goat hair, goat skins, and leather belt. He's eating locusts and honey. He's preaching. But but Luke takes us back a little further, and he starts his story with the birth of John the Baptist. And so uh, the story of the coming Messiah begins... Uh, even before that, with the birth of the forerunner, the birth of the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and that is John the Baptist. And, and his birth is miraculous in its own right. Of course, not in any way the same as the birth of Christ, but similar to other stories in the Old Testament, whether it was Sarah or whether it was Manoah or whether it was Hannah, uh, God blessed a woman who was barren in her old age to bring forth a child because he had a special purpose for John. And it's very important that we understand the context of this sermon because God had been silent with Israel for 400 years. And this is the context we have to understand of what's going on. You see, after Malachi finished his prophetic ministry and the book of Malachi is recorded, God had went silent. There was no prophet in Israel, not for 10 years, not for 100 years, but for 400 years. 
to bring that into perspective, if you go back 400 years ago, we're in the 1600s. We're about the time when the King James Bible was written. Uh, this precedes even uh, the colonial America. 400 years is a long time in Israel's history that God has not spoken to his people. And in that period of time, the people of Israel, the Jewish people suffered greatly. Except for a very brief period under the Maccabees, the Jews had been occupied by a foreign nation for 400 years. First it was the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And, under, and currently in the context of the Gospel of Luke, the Jews are still under Roman occupation. They longed for national independence. They longed for revival. They longed for the days when the kings in the line of David would rule Jerusalem. Messianic hopes were high, and they longed to hear from God. They longed to hear from God. You can't quite understand what it would have been like to be a Jewish person's time where for hundreds of years God had sent the prophets to speak to his people, to encourage them, to exhort them, to point them to the Messiah, and God had went silent. It would almost seem as if God had forgotten them. I want to ask you this morning a question. Have you ever felt like God has forgotten you? Have you ever felt as if the Lord had forsaken you? Maybe you are going through a period of suffering in your life. Maybe it's physical illness. Maybe it's relational problems. Maybe it's career issues. Maybe you just feel like you're in the desert and God is not with you. You feel alone. You feel forsaken. God has forgotten you. I want to remind you of something. The good news of the gospel is that God has not forgotten you. God is not like man. He is faithful to his promises. And he told us that he would never leave us, never forsake us. And although we may feel forsaken and feel forgotten, God never forgets. And so Luke brings us back to uh, John's ministry to show us that God had not forgotten at the right time in history he was reminding his people and as we'll see, because the very name Zechariah, and the reason why I say this, the name Zechariah means God remembers. God remembers. And this was a reminder to his people, I have not forgotten you. I've remembered my promises. I remember my word, and I will be faithful to keep it. So let's get back into the text and look at what we're dealing with. In verses 5 through 7, we're introduced to this godly couple, this God-fearing couple, and their name is Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it tells us in verse 5, it brings us to the time, it was during the days of Herod, king of, king of Judea. Now, uh, this is an important detail. Remember, Luke's a historian, and for Luke, every little detail of history, who's in, who's in leadership and what's going on in the political environment is, is fundamental to understand uh, what God is doing. Herod was considered the king of the Jews or the king of Judea, but he was not truly a king. He was not from the Davidic line. He did not descend from David. He was not part of the Davidic dynasty. He was a puppet ruler from Rome. He wasn't even Jewish. He was a pagan. In fact, all he did was carry out the edicts of Rome in tyrannizing and oppressing the Jewish people. He was well known for his building projects, however, and one thing he did to curry favor with the Jews was to rebuild the second temple. 
It's also known as Herod's Temple. It took him all 36 years of his, of his tenure as the king um, to complete this project, and it was glorious. It was, it was a splendor. It was a, an ancient marvel of architecture. Um, from what I've read from historians is that the temple was plated with gold so that as the sun would rise, it would reflect off of the gold plating of the temple, uh, giving the appearance of a shimmering, uh, uh, glowing temple that people from all around could look and sense uh, the presence of God. It was, it was awesome to behold, but it was built by a man who not only didn't believe in God, but also built pagan temples, and he offered pagan sacrifices. And the people of Israel, the true people of God, could care less for him. Not only that, but he was a paranoid dictator. This was a man who was always worried about someone taking his throne from him, and so therefore uh, would, would, would go on murderous rampages, killing anyone who dared uh, to cross a boundary. He killed people in his own family. This was not a man who was liked by people, who was a cruel, vicious dictator. And he was not ruling the people by the word of God, he was ruling people by the dictates of pagan Rome. It's within this context that we have a little couple, an old couple living in the countryside who are both priests. Now both Zechariah, who was a priest in the Aaronic line, and, uh, and Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest. I mean, that's a double blessing. This is a double blessing from God. Um, Elizabeth's name, like uh, similar to Zechariah, says the Lord has remembered. Elizabeth's name means God is my oath and that God keeps covenant with his people. He keeps his promises. Uh, you could see the symbolism of their names. And the best way I could describe this couple is that they're an old godly couple who are uh, like, just think of, of, of a pastor of an old country church who are nearing retirement. Uh, they're from the countryside and, 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 and they love God. They're, they're called righteous. They're, they're called blameless. That doesn't mean they're sinless. Let me make that clear. It doesn't mean they're sinless, but it means they lived a life of outward conformity to the law of God. It means that they, they feared God, and when they studied the word of God, they studied the law of God, they didn't just uh, uh, preach it, but they, they wanted to live an upright life, a righteous life. That means a life in conformity to God's ways, to his revealed will. And so here you have this righteous couple, this upright couple, this God-fearing couple, and, and, and they have one dark cloud over them, and the dark cloud is they never had children. Now, now, I think in any culture, in any time, for any couple, the inability to have children, um, infertility within a couple is a burden that, if anyone's ever been there, knows is hard to bear. Um, any woman who's ever experienced difficulty getting pregnant knows um, how how people could could say things and ask questions or be nosy and make you feel uncomfortable. You, you know that there's a stigma attached to infertility, and in the ancient world that was more so, and even more specifically within ancient Judaism. In ancient Judaism, if you could not have a child, it was looked upon as a curse or punishment from God. It was embarrassment. It was a reproach. It was scandalous. Uh, people would look at you, talk about you. What sin did she commit? God punished her. And so it was something that as a woman in the ancient world would have been one of the hardest burdens to bear. And yet you see this godly couple 
did not forsake God. They were committed to the ways of God. They were committing to godly living. And as we see later in the text, they had prayed for years, seeking God to intervene and answer and meet them in their hour of need. But I want you to step back and think for a minute. Sometimes we go through seasons of life or we go through trials in life, whether it's infertility or whether it's a difficulty in relationship or whether it's maybe a physical illness, whatever trial we're going through, it's often the failure and bad theology of people to say, oh, well, this person must have sinned in order to bring this judgment on them. Um, And so we have to be very careful not to go down that road. Sometimes it's true we do bring temporal consequences on us because of our sin. Uh, um, Clearly that is the case. If I'm drawing at a high speed and intoxicated and I get into a car accident, then I get the just temporary consequences of my sinful and reckless behavior. On the other hand, we can't assume that because someone's going through something difficult that God is punishing them or that God is uh, dealing with them because of some specific sin. Many times, God puts us through suffering, we read through the Bible, so that we can glorify him. The book of Job tells us that. Uh, Job didn't get an answer from God of why he suffered. The purpose of Job's suffering was so that he would know who God is and that he would glorify God by remaining faithful through that trial. And so when we're going through the trial, the question we should not be asking is, God, what did I do to deserve this? The question we should be asking on the other end is, God, how can I glorify you through this trial? Well, going from the stigma and burden of dealing with barrenness, we get to our second point, and that is good news, good news for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. And I'm going to say this very carefully because I'll give a disclaimer and explanation in a little while. This would be the luckiest day in Zechariah's life. He is about to experience the luckiest day of his life. If you look back over your life, you could probably look back and say, what was the most fortunate day of my life or fortunate event of my life? This was going to be a, a, a one in a million day for him. And I'm going to show you why. Go back to your Bibles and look in verse 8. It says, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and Israel had 18,000 priests at this time who served in the temple. It wasn't the same priest there all the time. The temple was big, and there were thousands of sacrifices going on a day. And of those 18,000 priests, they were divided into 24 divisions. 24 divisions. And of those 24 divisions, each division served in the temple on a rotating basis for two weeks a year. Plus, for the holidays, Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, you were required to show up for work. During those two weeks, um, uh, a year where your division was called to serve, it was going to be your responsibility. Now, this was now remember, this is a man who's old. He's been serving God as a priest for many years. He comes in with his division for two weeks of service. Uh, it's within those two weeks that each day... Two priests were selected by lottery to go into the holy place and offer incense before God. Um, Now, in the temple, if if you remember um, going back to 
the book of Exodus, the tabernacle, you would have the holy place and then the inner holy place or the holy of holies. And in the holy place, you had the table of showbread. Uh, you'd have the golden lampstand and then you'd have the golden altar of incense. And twice a day, a priest would offer incense on the altar and the smoke would go up and what it symbolized was that the prayer of the priest had made intercession for God's people. And so every day, both morning and evening, uh, uh, incense was burnt. And so of all of these priests, it was considered really lucky if you got chosen to go in and be the priest to offer incense on the altar. And so how was this priest chosen? Were they chosen, um, were they chosen because they did something good? Were they chosen because they found favor with the high priest? Were they chosen because they gave an extra donation? No, the Bible says they were chosen by lot. You know what that tells us? They were chosen by God. It tells us in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is a reminder also that in life there is no such thing as luck. Luck, luck is a term that depends on an understanding of mathematic probability. Do something so many times and eventually you're going to get lucky, right? Go to the roulette wheel, spin it round and round she goes, where it stops, nobody knows. That's how we look at luck. It's a mathematical probability. Let me make something clear. There are no random mathematic events in your life. Everything in our lives has been sovereignly decreed by God. The hairs of your head are numbered. The sparrow who falls to the ground is by the decree of God. The storm that comes into uh, uh, the region that buries us in 18 inches of snow is from the hand of God. You losing your job is from the hand of God. You finding a wife is from the Lord. It is a good thing. It is from the hand of God. The lot that's cast into the lap is from the hand of God. God had chosen Zechariah to be the priest who would go in, one of the two priests, to offer incense before God. It was considered such a privilege and such an honor, as one commentator says, it would be considered the apex of your career if you got chosen to go into the temple and offer incense. One can't even imagine the joy, so much so that once you got chosen for this, you retired. You were done with your service in the temple for the rest of your life. It was a nice send-off for Zechariah after many years of faithful service. So let's see what happens, because not only was it his chosen time to serve, was he blessed in a sense he was a child of a descendant of Aaron, and so was his wife. Not only did he have this unique privilege, but the day just gets better. What happens next tells us even more. It says, now while he was, I'm sorry, verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fell upon him. Now, it gives us a picture of what's going on here. Uh, what would happen is during the time when the incense was burned, all the people would gather in the inner court uh, surrounding the holy place, the, the, the pious and religious Jews, and they would gather because this was a time of prayer. And they themselves would be praying for the priest as he entered the holy place. 
And, and the priest himself, now Zechariah was just chosen, he would have to walk through the crowd and everybody would see him. And as he's walking into the holy place, they're praying for him and they're praying that God would receive his prayers as he intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. And as he enters into the holy place, it's dark in that room and he's all alone. All he could see that's the light that's burning from the golden lampstand. There's the table of showbread. Behind the curtain is the holy of holies, the presence of God himself. And as he was about to burn incense, there he realizes he's not alone. Imagine being in that room. He turns around and there before him is an angel from God. And what does he do? He fell with fear upon him to the ground. The Bible says he was troubled. He was trembling is what that word literally means. He was trembling and quaking with fear and fell to the ground. Uh, by the way, biblically, as you read accounts of angels, this is what happens when people see angels. Terror grips them and they fall to the ground. And I think this is important because I've heard people tell me stories. Oh, Bob, I saw an angel at one time. You really did? What happened? Oh, we were having a conversation, and really? That's funny. Every time I see people who've seen angels, one of the most terrifying experiences they ever had in their life. Why is it so terrifying? Shouldn't angels be good things that we see? We should be delighted to see them. The angels stand in the presence of God. Didn't Gabriel say that later in the text? He says, I, Gabriel, stand before the presence of God. Do you remember Moses when he went up to the mountain and he beheld the glory of God? It says he came down and his face was shining from the glory of God. And what did it do? It induced fear and terror among the people. When you stand in the presence of God and you come among common people, it is going to strike terror into their hearts because it is the glory of God that is reflected off the angel that is striking and inducing fear in Zechariah. What's happening is he's having a moment, not quite the same, but similar to Isaiah when he fell down and says, woe is me, I'm undone. Because the glory of Yahweh is being reflected through Gabriel the angel. No, the angels aren't cute little cherubs that fly around Christmas trees. In fact, if you read through the Bible, agents are often described as, angels are described as agents of judgment. They're messengers. They come to bring messages and glad tidings uh, by God to his people. But moreover, we see oftentimes that they are agents of God's judgment, particularly the book of Revelation. The angels, they're, they're pouring out bowls of judgment, trumpets of judgment. They're, 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 they're bringing raining hellfire on the earth. All that we would see the holiness of God reflected in these angels. And so we get to verse 19. Verse 13, rather, and the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Fear not, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Praise the Lord. This is a man who prayed his whole life. His wife had prayed, God, we know that nothing's impossible with you. Lord, give us a son. Give us a son, even in their old age. And here the angel appears to him in, in this moment, and he says, God's heard your prayer. You're going to have a son. His name is John. By the way, the name John, 
uh, literally means God is gracious. God was showing grace not only to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but John's birth was symbolizing God was being gracious to all of Israel, to the whole world. As the forerunner of Christ, the Messiah, he was going to declare that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is God's grace being shown to all mankind. John's birth was indeed, as verse 19 says, good news. In fact, this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke, the word in Greek, evangelion, which means evangelism, which is where we get the word good news, gospel is. The gospel begins with Gabriel announcing to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. It's going to be a miraculous birth. It's not something that you're going to do. God's going to do it because he's doing something new. This is good news. God is gracious. One can only imagine how many years they prayed. Maybe at this point in their life, they're not even praying for the son anymore. They're praying, God, give us grace to accept the fact that we'll never have a child. But God indeed was gracious to this old couple. Something else important to know here, and we go to the next verse. In verse 14, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Now I want you to see something important there. He will be great before the Lord. This is important also because it is often the prerogative of the mother and father to name a child. And that symbolizes authority. Your naming of a child symbolizes parental authority over your child. When Adam named all the animals, it, it, it wasn't because God wanted him to be a zoologist. It was because God had given him uh, authority over all of creation. He was a vice regent of God, and by naming all the animals, it symbolized his authority over all creation. And so for God to now take this away from John and Elizabeth symbolized that God has authority over this child. By naming this child, God is saying, I'm setting this child apart. He's mine, and I have a purpose for this child. He is going to be great. And no doubt that is precisely what Jesus said in Matthew 11, 11, that among men born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist. Why was he so great? He was great. I mean, think of the privilege and honor to be born, to be the man who would introduce the Son of God to the world. He prepared the way for the Son of God to the world. I don't know if you were watching the news this week, but San Francisco was preparing for the president of China to come into uh, visit and have some summit there with, with uh, the president and with the, the, the mayor of San Francisco. And what did they do? They cleaned the streets. They got rid of all the homeless people. They put up Chinese flags uh, quite frankly, I'm not too excited about the president of China, but that's needless the case. He's a dignitary, and there was a preparation for the entrance of this, this big major world leader into San Francisco. There was the, the, the red carpet was spread out, and that is exactly what John the Baptist came for, to throw out the red carpet and to prepare the way of the Lord. He was to prepare the hearts of God's people. And in the same way here, the angel of God, Gabriel, is here to prepare Zechariah and Elizabeth 
for the coming Messiah through the birth of their son. He says many are going to rejoice at his birth. He's going to give you joy and gladness, Zechariah, but many are going to rejoice. There are going to be people who are going to be thrilled. All of God's people are going to rejoice because of him. What was his purpose? His purpose is now defined to us in the, in, in the instructions of how he's to be raised. He says, in verse 15, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit, in the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to your children, the disobedient and the wisdom of the just, to make ready, to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. This is about preparation. God's purpose for John was to get people ready and prepared for the coming Messiah. Now, Zechariah is a priest. He knows the word of God. And if you know the word of God, you know that the angel Gabriel here is referencing the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. What does he say here in Malachi 3.1? Behold, I said my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This was the purpose. He was to fulfill this prophecy that Malachi, the last prophet in ancient Israel, gave, and here Zechariah I want you to think about this, who had, God had went silent for 400 years. Zechariah's name means God remembers still. And here he's saying, I have remembered my promise. The birth of your son is not only miraculous, but he is fulfilling my promise of being the one to come and prepare the way for my Messiah, for my Christ, for my son. One can't even imagine how overwhelming this must have been for Zechariah. His jaw must have dropped to the, to the ground. And he's given instructions that he must not even drink wine from his birth. This is a partial um, um, extrapolation from the Nazarite uh, vow which was taken. Uh, Samson, if you remember, took a Nazarite vow from birth through his whole life. Uh, Paul took a temporary Nazarite vow. But, but I want you to see the purpose the reason why he wasn't to drink wine his entire life was because he was filled with the Spirit from conception. I want you to think about that. No other person in the Bible does it say they were filled with the Holy Spirit from conception in their mother's womb. That's something to think about if you believe in abortion. What if Elizabeth had an abortion? Would it have been simply her choice? Or would it have been a great travesty of murdering a prophet of God? We don't know who we're carrying in our womb, ladies. Fathers, men, we don't know when a woman has a baby, who's, what future preacher of the minister of the gospel, what missionary is in the womb that God is preparing for ministry. He was to be set aside and not drink wine because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a man set apart from God. He was not to be just an ordinary man. He is extraordinary. 
He's unusual. He's distinct. He has a purpose. He's got greatness in his name because he will be the one to fulfill the word of God. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, as Christians also, we've been set apart from God. We've been holy. And we have to be thoughtful and mindful that either you are going to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit in your life or you're going to be filled and controlled by some substance, whether it's wine or whether it's drugs. Oftentimes people ask me, hey, well, marijuana is legal. Can I smoke marijuana? Do you want your mind to be controlled by a foreign substance, by an intoxicating substance? Or do you want to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with wine or these things. Yes, among men born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But Jesus says, greater are you. For you have heard and seen things that he never saw. We have the filling, not only, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And to are used to our bodies to glorify God. What we do in the body matters. Now how does Zechariah respond to this? And that's, that's really the final conclusion here as we look. And it's a reminder that even though he was a righteous man, even though he was blameless, he was not sinless. There's only one sinless one, that is Christ. And what we see here now is we see that Zechariah, upon hearing this message, rather than responding with faith and joy, responds with unbelief. I want you to think, all the events leading up to this day, again, he had to see the hand of God bringing him to this point. He had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to burn incense, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, not too many people get to see angels, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that God answers a prayer that, humanly speaking, is utterly impossible, and he sits there before the angel... And look at what he says in verse 18. He says, how shall I know this? In other words, I don't know if I could believe this. What, are you gonna, what, are you, what sign are you going to give me? How am I going to know this is true? For I'm an old man and my wife's advanced in years. Well, he's not saying anything wrong there, right? His, his wife advanced in years means she's past menopause. Biologically speaking, she cannot have children anymore. Right? Any woman here who's post-menopause knows you are done. You're not having any more children. It's over. Biologically speaking, scientifically speaking, this is impossible. He's sitting himself. He's looking at himself. I'm a withered old man. What, what, what is it? But does this man not forget who God is? Did he forget Abraham and Sarah? You see, sometimes you could live in defeat. So long, even in your prayers, trusting in God to answer your prayers, when the answer comes, because you live in defeat, you can't accept the truth that God is working in your life. This is a man whose doubt and unbelief blinded him to the reality of what God was doing. When he heard the good news, instead of responding in faith, he responded with doubt and he responded with unbelief. And I want you to think of the irony here. He prayed his entire life. Here he is serving in the temple, and with all of this, he caves in to doubt. How often we do the same? 
And the angel answered him, he says, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. You want to know how this is true? I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. You're here in the Holy of Holies, which is just the earthly uh, uh, representation of the heavenly reality. I literally stand in the presence of God. I serve Yahweh. And you don't believe me? And so, fittingly, he says to him, I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, now you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. He was a priest. You know what a priest's function was besides serving in the temple when he was back home? He was, his job was to teach and preach the word of God to others. His job was to teach people the law of God, the word of God, and tell them to believe in it and obey it. And now here he is being spoken to, receiving the gospel, good news, from an angel stands in the presence of God, and he's not believing it. It was a fitting judgment that he would not be able to preach the word of God anymore until this miracle came to pass. If he could not receive the word of God, then how dare he preach the word of God? And so he was rendered dumbstruck. He was muted temporarily until this would be fulfilled. And then we read the next part, which is a little comical. It says in verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Now remember, this should have taken no more than five minutes. You burn the incense, the smoke comes out, the priest comes out, everybody's cheering, praise God. The, the prayers were offered for the day. No smoke. He's been in there, what, 20 minutes? What's going on? You can imagine the chatter. And he comes out, and they say, what happened, what happened, what are you doing? It says he's motioning with his hands. He can't talk. He wants to tell them everything that happened, and he can't. Imagine that. Imagine the frustration of, of just having, and they said he must have had a vision, and he's sitting here trying to motion with his hands, and that's all he could do. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? God has a sense of humor. He wanted to tell them everything that he experienced, but he would be rendered silent until the day that God would decree. Elizabeth finally conceives in verse 24 and 25. After this days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. I like that. She kept this to herself. And thus the Lord had done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from the people. Not only was God taking away her reproach, but he was about to take away the reproach and sin of all his people. God was doing something amazing. Let me conclude. There are times, my brothers and sisters, we're going to go through dry spells. There are going to be times when we feel like God has forgotten us. There are going to be times when God may seem like he's gone silent in our lives. We don't sense his presence in our lives. Times where we're overwhelmed with sorrow and grief 
and we feel like we're in darkness and we're alone, I want you to know today God remembers you. God remembers all of us. Jesus promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that is because unlike the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God cannot forsake us. He cannot abandon us. The only time we feel forsaken or forgotten is when we have forgotten God. It's when we have forsaken God. It's when we have allowed sin to come in between us and God and break fellowship with God. What prevents us really from experiencing the face of God in our life is the sin of unbelief. And just as the sin of doubt and unbelief left Zechariah mute and it left him speechless, when we are wallowing in the sin of doubt and unbelief, it will render you silent. You may want to share the gospel with your coworker, but you can't. You may want to talk about the things of God with your neighbor, but you can't. You may want to talk about all the good things that God has done in your life and in the life of, of the people around you, but you can't. Because unbelief has rendered you mute. What we need to do is be certain of the things we know. Right? Zechariah says, how shall I know these things be true? What was the purpose of Luke's gospel? I wrote to you an orderly account that you may be certain these things are true. That we may know that this is the gospel. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. Believe that your sins are forgiven. Believe that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Put your full trust in him. Put your full trust in his word. Do not let doubt and unbelief overshadow you. As I said, it's not a God who has forgotten us. Oftentimes it's we who forget God. We forget his character. We forget his promises. Psalm 103 verses 2 through 5 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we are now concluding this message, not only are we reminded never to forget, but Lord, we today are going to remember your work and remember your grace through the very sign that you've given us of the covenant, the sign of the Lord's Supper. For as often as we do this, we proclaim your death till you come. Oh Lord, when we celebrate this cup and this, this bread that we eat and drink, oh Lord, we are saying we remember. We remember what you did for us. We remember that you took a human body. We remember that you bore our sin. We remember that you went to the cross and satisfied the wrath of God. We remember that you rose from the dead. 
Oh Lord, we remember. Please bless the remainder of our time in Christ's name. Amen.